CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm very happy to have all of you uh, with us out there. You know, in the middle of July, a very hot uh, July, um, we've traditionally expected maybe politics would slow down just a little bit. People would be off at the beach, not worrying too much about what's happening in campaigns, what's happening in Washington. But of course, the landscape has changed dramatically over the last couple of years, and politics never seems to slow down. And that's going to be very true this week. Uh, the January 6th committee uh, has two hearings this week, the first one tomorrow afternoon at uh, 1 o'clock. Um, there is a lot of news about particularly the U.S. Senate campaign. We're going to talk a bit about uh, Herschel Walker in uh, a while. Um, the president's having a major event celebrating the signing of the new gun law at the White House uh, today. There is more happening in, uh, since the overturning of Roe by the United States Supreme Court. So we've got all that and more, and we've got a great panel. I'm really thrilled uh, with the panel we have today, starting with uh, Patricia Murphy, our partner from the AJC who you know is a political reporter, also writes the Political Insider column, which you read in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays. Um, and she oversees the jolt at AJC.com every day. And Patricia, it's been a while since we've reminded people that even before your career as a journalist, uh, you were focused on uh, Washington and the Hill. You were um, in first Sam Nunn's office as an aide and then went on to uh, work with Senator Max Cleland. So you've seen Washington from both sides. I have. I loved my time working on Capitol Hill, but I am very glad to be on this side of the equation now. It's a lot less emotionally damaging. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being with us uh, today. I'm really thrilled to be able to welcome back to the show uh, former mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, it's been a while since the mayor's been with us. Mayor Franklin, we're always glad to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Glad to join everyone. Um, we're going to talk in a little while about you. In addition, of course, to your work as mayor, were pretty deeply involved at one point uh, in working in the, within the Democratic uh, uh, co National Committee. You were uh, uh, a big part of the platform committee at one point, but have had involvement in uh, the national committee in the past. And I'm going to, in a few minutes, get your take on what you think about this move by Georgia Democrats to get the primary moved up here for 2024. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Before that, let's introduce Edward Lindsay, a former state representative and a member of the leadership team, Republican leadership team, when he was in the state house representing Atlanta, the Buckhead area. And now... He is the head of the Georgia government relations team at Denton's, Edward, the world's largest law firm. Also a member, by the way, of the State Ethics Committee Commission, we want to point out. How are you doing, Edward? Just fine. It's actually the State Elections Board. Uh, 
but uh, but thank you very much for having me. Always oh, a pleasure oh. and uh, an honor to be on with my uh, with my former mayor, Mayor Franklin. Good to, good to see you again. Thank you. Um, all right, let's let's get right to it. Um, Patricia, the White House is having a celebration today uh, to uh, mark the passage and the signing by by President Biden a couple weeks ago now of the new gun law. You know, on the plus side, it's the first new gun law that has won uh, support and has passed in a bipartisan manner uh, in a couple of decades. It, it, you know, it does some good things. It um, requires background checks for uh, those under 21 who want to purchase uh, weapons. It closes the so-called boyfriend loophole. It, um, it has a few other uh, uh, aspects, but it, it, it's actually just a very first tentative step. And it also, Patricia, comes uh, in the aftermath of the United States Supreme Court ruling overturning George, uh, New York's gun law, which many people suggest is going to make it easier for people across the country to uh, carry guns outside of their homes without permits. Patricia? Yes, I think that the bill that um, they're celebrating at the White House today will make a difference over time. It has funding to expand mental health resources. It um, sort of expands and makes optional incentives for states to strengthen their red flag laws. But it it really won't make a huge difference immediately. And um, although its supporters, Democratic supporters, say it will save lives, I think that um, it is so discouraging for Democrats and people concerned about gun safety to see the bill signed and then within days another mass shooting, um, including the one on July 4th up in outside of Chicago, uh, not to mention all of the gun violence inside of Chicago that happened that very same weekend and happens day after day. So I think it is, yes, a step forward, which is a significant moment for this Congress that seems to be able to do very little um, of substance. However, it's just not it's not solving the problem. That's very obvious. Mayor Franklin, we should point out that uh, uh, Congresswoman Lucy McBath has been very involved in this fight. And we know, I think most of us, the very sad story uh, her son, her grown son, was uh, killed in a, a gun incident in uh, Florida, uh, what seemed to be an unprovoked and completely arbitrary incident. And she's been a strong advocate ever since for a stronger gun law. So it's no surprise, Mayor, that she'll be at the White House today, is it? No, it isn't any surprise. She was very clear when she ran for Congress um, a few years ago that um, taking on the issues of gun violence and just generally violence, but specifically gun violence, we're going to be at the top of her agenda. Uh, she's never wavered from that. Uh, she's been a spokeswoman uh, for uh, the parents uh, of children who have been killed. Um, uh, but there is no question that what Patricia said, we, we need, I believe we need the assault ban assault guns banned again. Um, this notion that you can blow off a child's head um, because you have an assault weapon and that perhaps you got it legally um, is ridiculous. Um, Edward, let's bring this home. 
Because you are a, a, a resident of Atlanta. You represented uh-huh. the city of Atlanta, Buckhead, during your tenure in the General Assembly. And, of course, I want to get Mayor Franklin's take on this as well. Um, we know that gun violence is a at, at a crisis stage in metro Atlanta, and certainly it, particularly in the city of Atlanta. To what extent do th- does this new law, do you think, have any ability to curtail any of that? Well, I think Patricia is right that, that it'll have some long-term impact, but the short term, I think folks will will, will not see immediate uh, improvement uh, as a result of this bill. And 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 I know a lot of our listeners want to see more. And 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 what I'll simply tell them is that keep at it. And uh, sometimes uh, reform is a matter of evolution rather than revolution. And it's simply taking one step at a time. And it is a step in the right direction. There's a lot of good things in this bill. Um, but but I do know that it falls short. And those of us who, in particular, who live in Atlanta uh, are concerned with the spike in crime uh, that we've seen over the last couple of years. And, um, and we're looking forward to a lot of different measures uh, being taken by different people to tackle that, including this bill and, and hopefully a lot more things. So I think along with what Mayor Franklin said in terms of uh, there's no assault weapons ban in this was never even contemplated is seen as such a political um, loser. There's no way to get that across the line. There was no change to age limits to possess a firearm. um, And there's no change to um, the loophole that exists for private gun transfers. And so those are the pieces that um, activists said really could make a difference. Um, but at the same time in Georgia, the laws are going the opposite direction with the governor signing that permitless carry legislation with dozens of state lawmakers behind him. It was his number one priority coming into the legislative session. And so there's just a, a very clear cultural gap between gun safety advocates and uh, Second Amendment advocates, and there's this huge open middle that I think most Americans would like to see a lot more action, but it's very hard to see where that happens. Mayor Franklin, let, let me ask you about this. Uh, you were a supporter, of course, during the campaign, mayoral campaign this last time of Andre Dickens, who won. Uh, and one of the things that he is working hard at doing is figuring out how to reduce gun violence and looking at it all across the whole city but also with an eye toward Buckhead, where you're going to have this continuing effort by Bill White and others to uh, separate Buckhead from the city of Atlanta. Um, what, how does this law in any way impact all that in, in your mind, Mayor, and what's next? Well, I'm really clear that, uh, as, as has been said by, by Ed and Patricia, I mean, we need, we're going to have to do more than one thing in order to uh, reverse the spike in crime. Um, and the crime is gun violence, but also other forms, uh, other forms of violence. So um, th- this law is a step in the right direction. It should give us encouragement that Congress can come together. Uh, but those of us who believe that there needs to be stricter laws around guns and the purchase of guns, um, and the licensing of guns, uh, clearly there's a division in Georgia and there's a division in the country. I wasn't as sure about the division as I am now, post um, the road uh, the road decision uh, and the gun decision of the Supreme Court. Uh, but I happen to believe that we're in a cultural revolution, 
I mean, we basically, people are fighting over values now. Uh, and those of us who feel strongly about gun control uh, and gun licensing and, and safe gun usage, um, and clearly, I, I believe in the Second Amendment, but I also believe that we have the right uh, as governments to regulate guns. So we are we are in a major, not just a gun crisis, we are in a cultural um we are culturally divided. Uh, and I mean, no, I, if somebody on the program knows how we're going to come out of this, I'd be happy to hear about it. But we, we are really in a crisis. And you can see it in all of the elections. You can see it in the Senate race, in the governor's race. You can see it in Washington, in the Congress. Um, and unfortunately, people are losing their lives in the midst of this. Edward, um, let me pick up on something the mayor uh, just said, basically, and that's this culture, uh, this bifurcated culture we're now living in. For, for a long time, and we know Republicans are primarily responsible for blocking uh, more stricter gun laws. Um, for a very long time, the, the reasoning behind that has been laid at the feet of the NRA. They're such a powerful lobby, Republicans particularly don't want to uh, uh, in any way hurt the funding they get from them, the campaign checks they get from them, don't want to alienate their members. But but it feels to me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, that it's more than the NRA. The NRA isn't what it used to be. But the right to possess guns with few restrictions seems to have become part of the Republican um, culture well beyond whether the NRA is involved or not. It's become an article of faith for many Republicans. Do you think that's right? Well, I think to a certain degree, you've got a point uh, in that you've got some of the loudest voices uh, do do all want to take a position when it comes to the Second Amendment that is, is sort of out there on the edge. Uh, the fact of the matter is I do disagree with Mayor Franklin to the extent where she says that we are at this great gulf between our society because I think what we have is because of the internet and other uh, social media, we have loud voices on one extreme or another. But I think most of us are found in the middle who want to simply find uh, solutions. And the question is, how do we uh, silence those extreme voices on one end of the spectrum or another and push forward uh, proposals that uh, that folks in the middle uh, more uh, universally agreed to. Uh, Patricia Murphy mentioned, for instance, expanding background checks. Uh, most NRA members favor back expanding background checks to close loopholes, uh, as well as a, a large swath of the of the public. So I think uh, a lot of us uh, in, in our society, this is beyond partisanship, uh, need to be pushing forward uh, those things that that have wide acceptance and asking the extremes on the left and the right to please just shut up for a moment and let us get something done. So, Bill, I think there are also some other policy solutions or policy attempts um, that are really worth talking about because gun violence um, really, in addition to being um, hugely driven by suicide, is also driven by a whole lot of crime all around cities, especially inner cities. Um, and I visited the mayor of Macon last summer and talked to him about violence, which was his sort of number one concern. And he talked about sort of this multi-layer effort that he was 
working on, which is to eliminate blight in some of the poorest neighborhoods in Macon so that people can't congregate in empty houses, put funding into programs for teenagers so that they are occupied and not preyed upon by gang members. Um, Fonnie Willis has urged the legislature, and they've done it, to toughen sentencing for gang members. Um, and the mayor of Atlanta, of course, has his midnight basketball where he broke his foot recently. Um, I think there are a whole lot of um, there's a lot of attention, I think, that needs to be paid to supporting a society so that it doesn't fall victim to gun violence. And I think a lot of those investments have not been made over time. And mayors around the state are looking for new creative ways while the federal and state governments sort of struggle and wrestle over restrictions to guns they cannot get through. They are working to support their own communities to make it to strengthen them against this. Mayor, so, before we leave I, this subject, I, I'd, go ahead. You go ahead. I just want to add, I, I don't disagree that the majority of the people are in the middle, but the political, the political alignment is clearly on either side. Uh, otherwise, we would have a stronger gun law coming out of the Congress right now. And like Ed, I know that this is incremental, but the bottom line is, uh, and I am an advocate for community investment. I mean, Georgia. Um, and many states, but Georgia in particular, is underfunded mental health care, mental health uh, care for decades and decades. I'm not blaming anyone in particular. It's been going on for years and years. We have underfunded ed public education. Um, we don't, we have not funded adequately um, the living conditions, helping people uh, on their living conditions. Um, there were times during my term in mayor um, that, you know, the state government was turning money back over to the federal government for job training, um, for support for affordable housing, things like that. So clearly we have fallen short in our state, and I am not talking about partisanship here in terms of investing in people, in neighborhoods and communities, in education and mental health care, in health care. Um, and now we have a law that allows um, uh, carrying a gun to be a right that no one can question. And yet we want the police to keep the city, the city safe. It's not, I mean, that doesn't make sense. Now, it doesn't make sense to me. And that's the reason I say that I think we're struggling over, over values. Um, at least the, the elected officials are. So I, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but we've got a lot of work to do. I know there are so many great things about our state. Many great things about our cities, but we can't ignore the fact that we still have a high poverty level. We still have low in investment in health care, low investment in public education, um, and that this has been going on for decades and decades. So, um, Mayor, um, and, and I'll ask you, Edward, we're going to talk in a, in a few minutes about abortion as an issue in the 2022 election, whether it is motivated, going to be a motivating factor. So let's start with uh, 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 Governor Kemp's signing of the permitless carry uh, bill. Um, first, you, Mayor Franklin, to what extent do you think voters will pick that up as a major reason for how they vote in November? In the polling, it usually uh, registers fairly low, certainly behind things like the economy, inflation, and the like. What's your take on that, uh, Mayor Franklin, and then you, Edward? So just quickly, um, I, when I ran for office in 2001, uh, there were 84,000 votes. I won my majority by 181 votes. 
So this is really, for me, not a question of how many voters, but whether enough voters are concerned. In other words, are there enough voters concerned about perm permitless carry or, road, or, or the road decision that, in fact, they are going to show up and decide to vote one way or the other? This is not a question of whether everybody changes. The question is whether some people change, and I do think some people will change. Well, to pick up on, on what Mayor Franklin uh, has said, there is a great book out that I recommend to our audience called Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Uh, that was probably the first mass single-issue uh, movement out in the country. And what the, the organizers of the prohibition movement recognized early on in the late 19th, early 20th century is that they didn't have to convince 51% of the voters <laughs> that they were right. And they just had to convince around 10% of the voters or 10 or 15% of the voters to always vote on that issue. Uh, regardless of any other issues that a candidate may have, they would vote whether or not they would vote for that person if they were dry, they would vote against them if they were wet. And, and that same, uh, that same methodology that was used in the prohibition movement, which never had more than a, a small fraction of the population in favor of it, still exists today with a lot of these uh, single-issue uh, advocates, whether it be abortion, whether it be gun rights and that sort of thing, is how many people can you get to always vote on that issue? And that's always been the struggle for these single – or whether that's always been the focus of these single-issue uh, organizations to try to get people to, to vote on that. I, I must admit, I, I'm somewhat doubtful that there's a really high percentage of folks for, on either of these two issues. Uh, compared to the issues of the economy uh, in general and inflation in particular, but we'll just have to see in November. Um, let's before we leave this subject, uh, Patricia. Let's talk about the other Georgia connection to uh, uh, gun violence, and that's that the uh, House Oversight Committee, U.S. House Oversight Committee, has called Marty Daniel, the uh, uh, CEO of Daniel Defense, a large gun manufacturing company in South Georgia. Uh, they want him up there to testify. Um, it was his company that uh, manufactured the AR-15 used in the Uvalde School massacre. It was also found in the hotel room of the Las Vegas shooter uh, several years earlier than that. And here's what the chairwoman of that committee, Carolyn Maloney, who's a New York Democrat, said uh, in her letter to uh, Daniel telling him they want him to testify. Products sold by your company have been used for decades to carry out homicides and even mass murders, yet your company has continued to market assault weapons to civilians. And Patricia, one of the particular concerns about Daniel, which came to light after Uvalde, is the marketing tactics they have used, particularly to, it appears, attract younger buyers. Yes. Um, Daniel Defense, which is based down in Bryan County, a huge um, facility. If you're driving on I-16, you can see it on um, you can see it on the side of the road. Um, they have really uh, popularized and almost revolutionized direct to consumer advertising for guns. And uh, there was an Instagram post uh, just the, I think the day of or the day before the Uvalde shooting, and it was a picture of a toddler with an AR-15 um, and a message, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, teach them young. And so 
um, it is that's one of sort of many, many direct consumer messages that they've had. And the way that the House committee is setting this up, it looks like they're looking to set up um, or to position and frame the gun industry like the tobacco industry in the um, 80s and 90s when it was judged that they had marketed unsafe products to people that did cost lives. Um, in that, in the language of the letter that they sent to Daniel Defense, it talks about them profiting off of the death of Americans. Um, and eventually, you know, if you manufacture AR-15s, uh, one of your guns will likely be used in a mass shooting. I think that's just a fact of life right now. And so uh, we have not heard if Marty Daniel, the CEO, has agreed to testify. Um, two other CEOs have been asked to testify as well when that hearing gets underway. Um, more than likely, Andrew Clyde will be in that hearing room. He is a member of that committee, um, and uh, his own gun store sells Daniel Defense AR-15. So it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a just a reality of guns, politics, and um, uh, this incredible gun violence tragedy right now. All right, we're, all right, we're going to watch to see whether uh, Marty Daniel. He has not been subpoenaed. He's been requested to testify. Right. So we'll see whether he agrees to go to Washington, um, and we'll keep track of that story. Um, we got a lot more to talk about on the show today, so I'd love to get the first break out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. AJC columnist and uh, reporter Patricia Murphy, former state representative Edward Lindsay, and the former mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, with us today. Mayor Franklin, a couple quick notes. Number one, uh, when you mentioned your victory back and uh, became mayor in 2002, I did have a flashback to that night. I remember being at headquarters with you watching that incredibly narrow margin <laughs> that uh, held up throughout the night and made you the mayor. It's a it's a fun memory for Mayor Mayor Franklin. For Have all we lost us. you, Mayor? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. I said it was surprising for all of us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, that night, I mean, all, of the, Franklin, all of the consult all the political consultants, national and local, said there was no way I could win without a runoff. So That's uh, exact yep. And the truth is since before Hartsfield, that what has been the case for an open mayor's seat. So it was kind of a, a strange occurrence. I felt that I needed to win without the runoff because I didn't think I could win the runoff against an established po uh, politician like Rob Pitts. And yet went on to serve uh, two terms uh, as mayor of Atlanta, the 58th mayor of Atlanta. Um, one other quick note, uh, and, and you, Mayor Franklin, gave me the perfect opening for this. Um, in talking about the fact that you worry about the culture that has divided us uh, uh, in, in such a dramatic way now between conservatives and progressives or between Democrats and Republicans, in fact, this gives me a chance to promote a show we're doing on Friday with former U.S. Congressman uh, Will Hurd, served three terms as a member of the U.S. House from Texas. And Will Hurd has written a book called American Reboot. In He calls it an idealist guide to getting big things done. And it's his um, guidebook for how he thinks we can uh, try to solve this enormous divide between Republicans and Democrats. Some would say it's a fool's errand, but Will Hurd has lots of ideas, and we'll talk to him about that on our show on uh, Friday. Um, 
Let, let me move on. before I do want to plunge into the election politics in a minute. But before I do, Patricia, and um, I, I want to talk about this move by Georgia Democrats uh, to make a case to the Democratic National Committee for moving Georgia's primary up into the first tier of uh, presidential primaries in 2024. I mean, we know the lineup now. It's We have the Iowa caucus, the Nevada caucus, the New Hampshire primary, the South Carolina primary. Georgia falls in line usually some weeks after that. Um, and I think the Democrats make an interesting case that this state has turned purple, and it's about time the South be represented in early primaries. Patricia? Yeah, well, of course, South Carolina is a very early primary state, um, but they are not a battleground state. And so it really is a different mm-hmm. set of issues that you hear unpacked when you go to a South Carolina Democratic primary event versus a Georgia Democratic primary event. Um, and so they need to really make the case to get rid of South Carolina, which might be tough because Jim Clyburn is still one of the most senior Democrats in Washington. Um, Nevada is important to Democrats because of its very high Latino population. But when you travel Iowa and New Hampshire, and Bill, you know this, um, when you travel those states covering those primaries, those caucuses and primaries, they are so small and so incredibly white. It is it is just an unbelievable difference from the the types of different voters you get here in Georgia, especially because of the immigrant population down here, which is very diverse even inside of itself. So I think there's definitely a case for Georgia to make. Um, can they oust South Carolina with Clyburn in power right now? I don't know, but I think Georgia's got a great case to make. Mayor, I'm glad that uh, Patricia clarified my initial comment. It 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 is certainly true South Carolina is uh, up there at the very front of the line. But it doesn't do much good for Democrats. I mean, as as uh, Patricia points out, South Carolina is a very conservative Republican state. Georgia uh, would have the potential to be a uh, have a much broader uh, constituency of Democrats to jump in on the Democratic side. Now, what happens on the Republican side is going to be interesting to watch too, Mayor Franklin. Well, it's interesting that you raised this, and when I saw that you might uh, raise it, I recalled a conversation with. Um, a Georgia Democrat, Bobby Kahn, it was when Maynard was running for chairman of the party that he made the case to the the DNC, this would have been in the 90s, that he made the case to the DNC that ought to be a southern state. And Alabama and Georgia and South Carolina all were vying uh, to be that state. Um, so this, for me, is a throwback uh, to Maynard Jackson in a really strange way. But there is no question that Georgia is more diverse. Patricia has mentioned the immigration, immigrant, immigrant population, which has really just ballooned in the last 20 years. So I, I, I think the Democrats nationally would be smart to have a more diverse state um, in the early primaries, and it would be good for Georgia. Well, if I can build on that, I think it'd be good if both parties uh, in Georgia would sort of push for this to come for Georgia to be early. Uh, for all the reasons that we've just mentioned, we have a, a, a lot uh, greater diversity in terms of our demographics. We are a large state. We are a swing state uh, in the, on the national level. Uh, and I think both political parties would benefit by having Georgia move up to an early primary 
so that you can get a presidential candidate for your respective party that uh, that has a real shot at getting elected in November, as opposed to some of these early states that are being used right now, uh, either because of their size or their um, homogeneous uh, population, or the fact that there are states in which um, you know they're simply not going to be in play in November. Why not move a state up that's going to be in play early on, uh, in November and has the kind of demographics that more closely reflect the country as a whole? So I would love to see uh, both parties in Georgia uh, push this issue. Patricia, before we move on, just for our listeners, we, we presume, I, well, maybe not, maybe not, that both the Democratic and Republican pri- presidential primaries would be held on that same day, uh, it, it, even it, whether they're, it's moved up or not, right? You know, I would have to defer to Ed. I think that would be a choice. Does the legislature need to get involved in that, Ed? Or, it, no, it's just I a think, party activity. Um, but I don't think there's a, a rule requiring them to be simultaneous. And I want to say that because I feel like I have covered states where it's been on two different days. Edward, we'll have to look into this, Edward, unless you have the answer to that. Or Mayor Franklin. Historically, it's been the Secretary of State that picks the date. Um, but, uh, but like I said, I would like to have some of our listeners uh, sort of sort of confirm this. But historically, it has been the Secretary of State, and, and I believe that is still the law. But that's something that we need to be looking into. And perhaps somebody okay, we'll, listening in can tweet us quickly as to whether or not what the law is presently, which we've had people do we in the lo- past. We do. We love real-time fact checks on this show. <laughs> You're right. All right. Let's while while we're waiting for the possibility of that, uh, let's. And that's just an interesting story. We'll see how it how it moves forward, and it could have some impact. The reason it's of greater interest in who, what candidates emerge, uh, Patricia. I'll just say a quick plug for the idea of having an early primary state. The amount of attention that this state would get from uh, nom- people looking for that nomination is unbelievable. It becomes a lobbying campaign among, uh, for support of, you know, state House members, first-term state House members you've never heard of. I mean, these campaigns go to great lengths to just shower attention on individual states. And so it makes a huge difference for when once those people are national leaders, how much in their consciousness the state remains for the long term. Um, okay, we will watch how that uh, develops. Um, Patricia, while the ball's in your court, why don't you start us off on uh, our next topic? Um, let's talk a little bit about the post-Roe world. Um, you all reported in the AJC this week that uh, Representatives Andrew Clyde and Jody Heiss are calling on the University of Georgia to end whatever their involvement is with a website that um, brings attention to so-called pregnancy centers that, in fact, may appear on first glance to be helping women who are seeking abortions uh, move forward. They, in fact, are uh, organizations, they're run by organizations that do everything in their power to discourage these women from having abortions, Clyde and Jody Heiss say that uh, these are far-left radicals who are trying to uh, uh, fight back uh, 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 against these pregnancy centers. And, of course, this all started with reporting where? On Fox News. Patricia? 
Yes. Um, and the you know, university officials say that they have provided sort of a broad spectrum of information for students, um, including pregnancy centers, which they said they were trying to be helpful by sharing different types of places that people could go to get more information. Um, Clyde and Heiser are saying that it is making these a target for um, kind of left-wing terrorists basically, that that's why they don't want this information shared. Not that they don't believe in the mission of the pregnancy centers, but that they are suspicious that this is an effort to endanger the people who were there working. Um, it's uh, because it comes out of this kind of Fox News news ecosystem, bubbles up to these two conservative congressmen. Um, I don't really think it's a part of the bigger debate that is very real here in Georgia about what happens in a few weeks um, once the federal appeals court decides what to do with the state six-week abortion ban? What do uh, local prosecutors decide to do in terms of prioritizing that um, with their own resources? We are hearing from some city governments that say they're not going to spend any resources prioritizing prosecution. So there is a lot to talk about on this issue. And I think Heiss and Clyde are kind of going to the to the narrow, um, very strange kind of reporting on this that that really obscures the, the big, big questions on this issue in the state. I, I, I think that's right. And so, Mayor Franklin, let's broaden the lens for Georgia uh, right now. We now know of at least seven district attorneys, uh, mostly in uh, metro areas of the state, who say that they will not prosecute offenders once Georgia's abortion law goes into effect. And I don't think there are many people who believe that it will not eventually go into effect. The courts are looking uh, at it right now here, the federal court. Uh, and of course, Chris Carr, the attorney general who supports the law, uh, says that it is a dereliction of duty if district attorneys refuse to follow the law. Uh, weigh in on this for us, Mayor Franklin. Well, I mean, I was just thinking about what you were going to ask and what I was going to say. I mean, I'm speechless on this topic. I mean, I'm 77 years old. I've lived through um, the period when women uh, got abortions but did so in unsafe uh, settings. And here I am at 77. Here I am at 77, not um, we're back there again. I actually think this issue is going to swing votes uh, in Georgia. Uh, and I think it will, it may not swing them as much in the House and the Senate, State House and Senate, but I do think it's going to swing votes in. The governor's race, I think it's going to swing votes in the Senate race, uh, and it may swing votes in any other local races. Um, I can tell you that my emails and um, contact with women who are really more independent than Democrat or Republican clearly swung more to Democrat after this, after the leak and then definitely after the ruling. Um, and people want to know what they can do. They're scared for their daughters and granddaughters and very upset. Well, from a uh, political standpoint, like I said a, a few minutes ago, we'll just have to wait and see. Right now, the poll numbers aren't really showing uh, that much of a shift as a result of, these, uh, of the issue of abortion, but we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, to the point of prosecutors or or uh, attorney generals uh, not enforcing the law. I'm reminded by something that, that Mike Bowers, uh, the former AG of Georgia a long time in the 80s and the 90s once said to me, 
in which he was sort of said, Edward, you know, if you if you want to set policy, you run for governor or you run for the legislature. Uh, the role of an attorney general or the role, for that matter, of a prosecutor is simply apply the law as set by the policymakers. And so, um, you know, that's going to be the difficult position that all these prosecutors may be in. Uh, and and any one running for attorney general may be in is that your job is to basically stand up in court and defend whatever policy uh, the legislative body uh, passes and the governor signs. And that's that's going to be the difficult task. And and to a certain degree, quite frankly, it's also uh, some grandstanding. I mean, whether or not a, an abortion clinic stays open or not will be determined uh, more by regulatory aspects rather than law enforcement. Uh, losing your license, for instance, to practice medicine would have an enormous impact. Uh, so, you know, that, that that's going to put the focus back on the legislature uh, and and the governor's office in terms of what where our policy is going to be on abortion. That's just the reality that we're facing here. Uh, Mayor Franklin, we know that over the weekend, uh, President Biden uh, announced a couple of executive actions, which he went into acknowledging there's not a whole lot that the president of the United States can do to change what the Supreme Court did on overturning Roe. Uh, but he did issue orders that he believes will protect the rights of women to uh, get the abortion pill uh, through the mail, that will protect their right to cross state lines to have abortions. Um, but there's a great frustration among Democrats that the president has just not been proactive enough on this and other issues. I, the question is, you know, what are they asking him to do, understanding that there's only so much that any president could do in this situation? Well, I mean, I, I mean that's really a good question. Um, it, there are... I mean, Ed's point, which is there are certain laws, and you do you are bound by them. But you know, this country is not one that only has good laws. We could go back over recent history, uh, and the laws have been um, broken, um, and prosecutors have been prosecuted. So certainly, all through the civil rights history, uh, laws were broken, and prosecutors didn't prosecute. So, but the bottom line is Biden. Biden is pushing the envelope. He believes he's pushing the envelope. I'm going to stand with him on pushing the envelope, and we've got to push Congress to take action. Um, these are these are issues that can be handled by Congress, and we need to push Congress to do it. You know, Patricia, before we leave the subject, and I got to get to a break in a minute, but let me let me talk about that with you. Ask you about that for a moment. I mean, you know, the progressives in the Democratic Party uh, seem to be uh, pushing Biden hard on issues that they know. Well, maybe they don't know that seem hard for him to be able to do much about in abortion being a prime example of that. And in the process, uh, the question becomes, are they making the president whose approval numbers are already bad look even weaker? Well, the answer is yes, they're pushing him on something he can't do anything about, which is the Democrats' numbers in the Senate are 50, and they need 60 to pass something like this without Republican support. Um, and it is making him look worse. But Joe Biden was never one of the progressive top, even top five choices for president. He sort of won by aggregating the most votes, which is how, how it works. But he didn't do that with this booming, loud support from progressives. He did it because he was running against Donald Trump 
and they were they would take any Democrat over Donald Trump. But that, that when when you have issues like this where they're on the same page but not speaking the same language, this is when you start to see that fray. Progressives are not going to quiet themselves just because Joe Biden um, takes a more measured approach at a microphone. They just don't have time for that. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. They're going to make their own case to their own voters and push this as hard as they can, no matter what it does to Joe Biden's popularity. All right. um, We got to get to the final break of the show. Let's come back and talk a little bit about trouble in the Herschel Walker campaign. We'll be back after these messages. Patricia Murphy, uh, you uh, reported on and then expanded upon a Daily Beast article that was a pretty blockbuster report last week talking about trouble in Herschel Walker's uh, campaign. Among other things, uh, anonymous sources in the campaign said he lied to them about whether he had more than his one uh, child. Uh, They're troubled by the strange statements he makes at various times. Um, And now we know that they're bringing in a new team. The the Republican uh, Senate campaign committee wants a new team to come in, including uh, 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 some pretty prominent names in Republican politics. How much trouble does it appear to you that this Walker campaign is in right now? Or is this just an insider uh, issue that we all find fascinating? Well, I think it's an insider issue that could cause external problems um, going forward. Uh, they're bringing in Chip Lake, who uh, voter, who our listeners will know from um, his long time in Georgia politics. They're bringing in Gail Gitcho, who is a longtime um, sort of crisis communications strategist. They're bringing in a debate prep coach, which is uh, going to be very important for a candidate who has never debated before. Um, and the story from the Daily Beast was problematic because it did not have any named sources, but it did echo a lot of what we've heard um, and seen that this is a, a very tightly held campaign, that Herschel Walker is erratic when he speaks publicly sometimes. Um, and uh, the, the reality is that Republicans in Washington are very nervous. They do not know who Herschel Walker is as a candidate once he's sort of allowed to roam freely on a debate stage or at an event that's truly open press with back and forth questions. They don't know how he'll respond because they've never done that before. And they're getting real short on time here for him to uh, get up to speed on these issues and get comfortable in front of microphones. Um, And in the meantime, it's just a a press vacuum of a whole lot of negative stories coming out. And they're not countering that with anything, um, with him proactively putting forward his own message to anybody besides GOP county meetings. Edward, every revelation that adds to Herschel Walker's personal baggage in this campaign is countered by the big question, does anybody who's going to vote for him really care? Is he that big a superstar that these things just don't matter? Edward? Well, it's yet to be seen. Uh, and, and as Patricia mentioned, right now it's an inside baseball issue. The question is, can it 
metastasize and, and, and grow. Uh, a lot of the brushback he's getting right now reminds me from that scene from the, the movie The Natural. You know, welcome to welcome to the majors, Mr. Hobbs. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the majors, uh, uh, Herschel Walker. <laughs> Uh, but you know, and 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 I'm I'm glad to see that they're bringing on people like Chip Lake and others who who are pros who know how to uh, to help candidates uh, get their message out. The fact of the matter is, um, a lot of these revelations uh, are embarrassing, uh, and they need to be uh, addressed uh, straightforward by uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, and if he does uh, address them straightforwardly, I think he can emerge as a strong candidate in the fall. But if he continues to sort of duck uh, uh, stepping in front of a microphone and addressing them, it'll be it'll be serious. I, I am. I do recall uh, one other Senate race, I believe up in Michigan at one point, had a had a somewhat tainted candidate uh, because of some personal uh, indiscretions. And voters uh, came out of the voting booth and voted for him and said, well, I'm electing a, a senator, not a saint. Uh, and, you know, and we've seen other situations where people have exaggerated or misspoken. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal in Connecticut, who uh, falsely stated that he uh, had served in Vietnam when, in fact, he had received five deferments and then ultimately went into the reserves. So, I mean, he can survive, but he but he damn well better uh, get on the ball and step in front of a camera and start talking to people like Patricia Murphy. Mayor, Mayor Franklin, there's beginning to emerge a scenario that suggests, and it's it's not based on a lot of data, but it's anecdotal, that there are any number of people who are going to vote Republican and other uh, uh, um, races on the on the ballot, uh, but are going to vote for uh, uh, Raphael Warnock over Herschel Walker. And I'm wondering uh, what your take is on the Walker campaign right now and how Raphael Warnock seems to be faring uh, compared to that. Well, I'd say congratulations. Thanks to anybody who does that, first of all. Um, And I want to say the most important thing that everybody who's listening needs to do is to vote. Um, Whether you vote the way I vote or would recommend. Um, So I think Warnock is going to do well. I think he's going to do well. There might be people who vote um, a split ticket this time. And Warnock will certainly be their choice. Uh, for Senate. I think more people are going to vote Warnock than we think. Uh, Patricia, before we leave, and we're really running out of time, I've a number of times now alluded to a Wall Street Journal piece last week, which quoted a, a Georgia, a suburban mom in Georgia who was very upset by the Roe decision by the Supreme Court. She said her grown daughters cried when they heard it, yet she said, I'm going to vote for uh, Brian Kemp. Yeah, I know he passed uh, an abortion law that almost bans abortion, but I'm going to vote for him because I think he's done well in other areas of the state. Oh, by the way, I'm thinking I'll vote for Raphael Warnock because I hope he'll codify abortion (laughs) into federal law. I don't know how you solve that kind of problem if you're a Democrat in the Stacey Abrams campaign, especially. Well, look at Stacey Abrams' campaign and her economic policies Word for word, they're almost entirely very similar to Brian Kemp's economic policies. We've got that in the jolt today, and it's no accident. We call it copy Kemp. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's a subject we're going to take up. I wanted to get to it today. We didn't. Tomorrow, we're going to take that up. Um, She has done an interesting job getting out front on spending 
the surplus that the state is showing at the end of the fiscal year. And we'll talk about that and more on the governor's race on the show tomorrow. In the meantime, Mayor Shirley Franklin, it's always such a pleasure when you agree to do the show. And it was again today. Edward Lindsay, you know that we always enjoy having you on as well. And Patricia Murphy, thank you for being here. We are completely out of time for today's Political Rewind. Back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.